We are going to be in Colossians chapter 1 today, so if you would like to turn in your Bibles or on your smart device to Colossians chapter 1, we will get to our passage in just a moment. But I got a deep theological question that I want us to start off with this morning, and that if you are the, the father of boys or the parent of boys, uh, then you will know that how important this question is, because it's debated and it divides people. Which superhero is faster, Superman or The Flash? Man, this stage seems small. I'm going to fall off it. Um, I almost did. There we go. Superman or Flash? Well, you know, Andrew, my son Andrew is 10, so he's kind of moved on. But when he got the superhero bug uh, when he was younger, I mean, he inundated me with questions about which superhero was faster, which superhero was stronger, which was the best, who was smarter, you know, who would win between uh, a fight between Batman and Iron Man, right? I mean, he, he would ask me these questions to the point that I pulled my hair out, and I don't have any left. No. Um, That was bad. You guys didn't laugh at me. That's okay. Okay, well, maybe superheroes aren't your thing, uh, but we as a country are consumed with knowing who is the best at something, right? There's some basketball thing going on right now about uh, trying to prove who's the best team. I I can't even tell you, other than Pastor Jonathan said the Cavaliers and um, Oklahoma State. See, I'm not even good at this. Oh, what? The Warriors, right? Golden State, the Warriors. Thank you. So sports are not my thing, but in our country, you know, we have a nationally televised spelling bee, right? You ever watch it, the Scripps National Spelling Bee, to determine who's the best speller in the country, right? We have a, we have a hot dog eating contest where people from around the world travel uh, to see who can eat the most hot dogs. Uh, I think it's in like in 10 minutes. We have reality shows from The Biggest Loser to Survivor to, um, uh, to Cutthroat Kitchen, whatever, whatever your realm of interest is, we are consumed with knowing who is the best, who is supreme, who, who, who is going uh, to rule or who is going to be the best, who's going to be crowned as champion. Today, as we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, this is the message that Paul is going to give us, that Christ is supreme in all things. That Christ is supreme in all things. It's kind of funny as you read through the first chapter of Colossians, Paul is introducing himself. And in beginning in verse 13, he kind of, he, he kind of goes on a rabbit trail, right? He goes on a tangent, and he starts talking about Christ, and he gets so consumed, he keeps going until he gets to verse 23, and in verse 24, he'll flip back to introducing himself again. But he gets so consumed because this is the purpose. This is why he is writing the book of Colossians, the letter to the church at Colossae, because he is trying to show us that Christ is supreme in all things. And we're going to see today that no one can compare to Christ. No one can compare to his power and his glory and his grace. And the question, or the challenge for us today is that if Christ really is supreme in all things, then that has major implications for how we live our lives. That has major implications for the decisions that we make and the the things that we do. So the passage we're going to work through today is theologically dense. Uh, Paul has chosen words and phrases specifically to address uh, controversies within the church at Colossae. Paul didn't start the church, uh, but there are people that have have raised up in the church that are false teachers. And they're teaching about Christ, and there's, there's one of two things that are likely happening in the church that he's trying to discount. One, some of the teachers in the church were teaching that, yes, to be saved, you must have faith in Jesus. But... That's not enough. 
You also have to become circumcised. You also have to become a Jew. You also have to do a certain list of things in order to be saved. Yes, you must have faith in Jesus, but Jesus is not sufficient. Jesus is not enough. And in two weeks, uh, in, in Colossians, later in Colossians, we're going to look at the sufficiency of Christ. Another group of teachers uh, that might have arisen in the churches uh, would have been teaching that, yes, Jesus was from God. Jesus was sent by God. He was a manifestation of God, and he gave a message. He was a good teacher, and he gave a message that, uh, that we can listen to and we can be saved. But they would have said that he's not the only way. They would have said there's more than one manifestation of God, more than one way that God has sent, more than one messenger that God has sent that we can follow. And so Paul, as we get into our passage, which is theologically dense, just there's so much uh, packed into our passage today. Paul is trying to address those two issues. He's trying to address those believing that Jesus is not sufficient for salvation. And he's trying to address those that believe that Jesus is not the only way of salvation. As we move into our passage, Paul is addressing how only Jesus is qualified to be Savior. How only Jesus is qualified to be the Redeemer of man. Let's pray and we'll get into our passage. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you are sufficient. And Lord, that you have all power and authority. And Lord, as we study your word today, Lord, I pray that you would put us in awe of who you are and what you've done. May we worship you more fully. May we, may we be moved by your spirit uh, to follow you and to give and surrender all of our lives to you. God, you are good. We thank you for your love and your grace and pray that you'd be a work in our hearts today. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. First thing I want us to see from our passage today is that Jesus is supreme in his nature and authority. Jesus is supreme in his nature and authority. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Stated differently, Jesus is the perfect image or he is the perfect picture. He's, he is God revealed to us and he is the ruler of all creation. In, Jesus, in Paul's day is the same as in our day. There are academics and, and others that, that would point to Jesus as a good teacher. They say, we can learn from him. He taught things and we should, we should follow. They, there would have been teachers that, that would have said, yes, he's good and we can learn from him. But they would deny the deity of Christ. Christ. They would reduce his power and his authority. They'd explain away his miracles. And because if they of Jesus, of Paul's day and they of our day, if they can make Jesus insignificant, then they don't have to listen to him. They can pick and choose. If, we, if somebody can make Jesus insignificant, then they don't have to listen to all of his word, and they can just pick and choose. Well, I like this, but I don't like that. Oh, I like this. This is good for me, but this, I'm, ah, I don't agree with that. But if Jesus is God, if Jesus is God, and he rules over all creation, and in verse 15 where it says he's the firstborn of all creation, um, the, the term firstborn does not mean one having been born first. It's specifically referring to Jesus' place in creation. He's over, his pri he's primary over creation. Um, one commentator said this, he says, not only is Jesus the perfect picture of God, but he also holds the highest rank in the universe. 
See, there's none higher than he. And if this is true, if Jesus really is God, if he, if, if he is the representation of God, the perfect representation of God in the flesh, and if he really is rule, if he really rules over creation, then we have to take his word seriously. We have to, we have to take all of it. We have, to, we have to take it with authority in our lives. Because of his nature and authority, because he is God, because he is ruler over all creation, Jesus has the right to tell us how to live. Jesus has the right to set the priorities in our lives. Jesus has the right to tell us to move across the country or across the world if that's what he wants. Jesus has the right to call our children to do the same. Jesus has the right to ask us to stay in a job that maybe we don't love anymore and maybe we despise because he's not done with us there yet. Jesus has the right to set the priorities for how you raise your kids, how you spend your money, and what you do with your time. Because of his nature and authority, because he is God and he rules over all creation. See, people do not want to accept that Jesus is any more than a good teacher. They don't want to accept that Jesus is God because if he isn't, they don't have to listen to him. He has no authority over their lives. But if we acknowledge that he is supreme in his nature and authority, then we have, to, we have no choice but to submit to him. We have to surrender our lives to him and say, God, what you want for me is what I'll do. I'm gonna, guys, this is messing up. I'm going to switch to this real quick. There we go. Sorry, it was falling off my ear. Um, all right. So Jesus is supreme in his nature and authority. Number two, the second thing I want us to see is that Jesus is supreme in his power. Jesus is supreme in his power. Colossians verse, uh, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you were reading these two verses, uh, you don't want to just pass them by. You want to stop. You want to camp. You want to kind of pick out how does this apply to our lives. We could, we could have an entire sermon based on just these two verses, and, and I'm not even going to uh, fully scratch the surface of what God has for us here. But Jesus is supreme in his power. How? Why? What are the reasons that Jesus is supreme in his power? I'm going to present three things why I think Jesus is supreme in his power. The first being that he is the creator. The beginning of verse 16 says, For by him all things were created. Jesus is supreme in his power because Jesus is the creator. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things came into being through him, and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Jesus is supreme in his power because he is the creator. And Jesus displayed his power over creation throughout his authority over creation throughout his ministry. If we look at his ministry, we show we see his his power over nature, we see his his power over illness, we see his power over demons, we see his power over death. Um, in um, if we look at the gospels in John chapter two, Jesus turned the water into wine. In Matthew chapter eight, Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. 
In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus walked, or Jesus fed the 5,000, and then after that, he walked on water. There are over 20 recorded miracles of Jesus healing individuals that were sick or were injured from the woman that touched Jesus, the hem of Jesus' cloak, that the hemorrhaging in her body might be healed to the paralytic, to the blind man, and to the leper. There are six recorded miracles in the New Testament of Jesus casting out demons and three recorded miracles of Jesus raising someone from the dead. Luke chapter 7, the widow's son, Matthew chapter 9, Jairus' daughter, and John chapter 11, Lazarus. Jesus sets out in his ministry to prove that he has power and authority. He is supreme because he is the creator. Only the creator has a power and authority over all those things. Jesus is supreme in his power because he's the creator, but also because he, everything was created and exists for him. Everything was created and exists for him. There was a gentleman in our last church, that uh, Ray Hargraves. I liked Ray, uh, not just because of his first name. Uh, he, Ray was a sweet man. He was a founder of the church decades earlier, and Ray was a carpenter. 78 years old, Ray would spend five hours a day in the carpentry workshop at uh, the retirement home where he lived. He made tremendous works of craftsmanship. Uh, I mean, he, he gave me a wooden pin. Uh, he, he had... He had carved a wooden pin. Uh, he made jewelry boxes. I went to his apartment. Uh, he had spent some time in, in uh, physical therapy rehab, and, and I went to visit him after he went home, and he showed me around his apartment. And he showed me in tables, exquisite in tables, and elaborate uh, marble slides. And throughout his apartment, I saw wonderful works of his hand. It was just amazing. And I left in awe of this man because of all that he created and how beautiful and amazing it was because I'm like, I could never do that. And that is how we're supposed to look at our Savior as the creator. We're supposed to look in awe of him. When we sing the words, I stand in awe of you, do we really stand in awe? Or are we just singing the words? But that's not enough. Verse 16, I think, tells us not only we should be in awe of him because he's the creator, it's not enough for us to acknowledge that he's the creator. We must also acknowledge at the end of verse 16 that all things have been created through him and for him. Verse 16 claims more than just the creator. Verse 16 says, not only is he the creator, but he is the reason that everything was created. He is the reason that everything has come into being, that he brought everything into being. Everything was created to bring himself glory. We think about uh, why, why God would have men on their knees for hours uh, trying to scrape up uh, carpet. Uh, that have been glued down, why we experience trials in our lives, whether it be, uh, whether it be illness or financial, whether it be a tri the trials that we have as a church today. Why, why, did Jesus, why did Jesus create Satan, whom he knew would rebel against him? Why did Jesus, and this is a question that my son has asked me, uh, started to ask, is, is why did God create us with the ability to sin? Why did he create the world knowing that we would sin. These are the questions. But this verse, verse 16, tells us that he created everything for himself. 
that all things have been created for him. So very often, and Scripture tells us in Romans chapter 5 and James, uh, that, that there are very specific reasons for why things happen in our lives, why trials or troubles happen in our lives. And those things are to bring us closer to him and for him to accomplish his purposes. There's very specific reasons oftentimes. But there's a bigger picture why those things happen, along with everything else. They happen to bring him glory. He created everything that he might be glorified. Jesus was glorified when he defeated sin and death, and he thwarted Satan's plans when he died but did not stay dead. Jesus was glorified. Jesus is glorified when, uh, when by all creation, which has never ceased to testify to his eternal power and his divine nature, Romans chapter 1, verse 20. Jesus is glorified when he saves us by grace through faith, not a work of our own, but a gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Jesus is glorified when we learn to trust him and walk with him, and when we determine that we are going to follow him no matter what he asks us to do. When we go through trials and we turn to him. Jesus has created everything that he might be glorified. See, Jesus is supreme in his power because he's the creator. He's supreme in his power because he created everything that was created and exists for him. And Jesus is supreme in his power because only he holds all things together. There are some in our world today that will look at all of creation... They will look at the probabilities of the fact that we should not be standing here today, that this world, if things were just a little different, life would not exist in this world today. And they say there has to be a divine power. There has to be an outside force that's acting upon this world to bring everything to existence. And so they would say that, yes, there has to be a God who created. But then they want to step back. They want to say, okay, I'll acknowledge that God exists, but... He doesn't really have any power or authority in our lives. He, he created everything. He set everything into motion. And then he stepped back and he's just watching. And he's either unable or unwilling to interfere with what happens in our world. But that God is impersonal. That God is uncaring. That God lacks power and authority. And he's not worthy of worship. If our God is not sovereign, if our God uh, is not in control of every single thing, and, we are, and, and there is nothing that we can do that can stop him from accomplishing his will in this world, then he is not worthy of our worship. But he is sovereign, and nothing is outside of his control, and nothing can stop him from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish. And these verses, these verses tell us that Jesus, God the Son, holds all things together. That he is, he is so sovereign that if he were to stop we would all cease to exist. If I had a balloon and it was full of air and I hadn't tied it and I was just holding it together, as long as I hold it together, the air stays in the balloon. But as soon as I let go, the air escapes and it ceases. That is God's sustaining work in this world. That if Jesus just stopped, Wayne Grudem, a theologian who wrote a systematic theology book, says, if Christ were to cease his continuing activity of sustaining all things in the universe, then all things except the triune God would instantly cease to exist. Because Jesus is holding all things together, he has created the order that science is based off of. He is is the reason that, that when we do an experiment today, we get the same results tomorrow. This is his power that he is able to create order and sustain it. And only he's able to do that. Why do we not, when we sing, when we read, 
Why do we not stand in awe and amazement? Right? I'm not a... I, I'm not an overly expressive guy when it comes to worship. I feel very uncomfortable sometimes raising my hand, but sometimes I want to, right? Uh, sometimes, it, but I, I feel kind of uncomfortable doing that because I'm like, ah. Oh, uh. But if he is, if he really is that amazing, then we should lose ourselves like David did, right? I mean, we, if, if he really is that amazing, why do we not stand in awe and wonder of who he is? And I think because for many of us, we view God very smallly. We view him as a small God. He doesn't have the power and authority in our lives. He doesn't have the ability to help us. He is not in control. But Paul is presenting this case for us that Jesus is supreme in all things in this verse, in this chapter. And the more we come to understand that, the more we will come to be overwhelmed by who he is and how great he is and how powerful he is. And when we come to those moments where we're going through trial and struggle and difficulty, maybe in your life today, in the church today, then we have no fear. We have no doubt because there is nothing that surprises God. There is nothing that is outside of his power, nothing that is outside of his control. Paul is trying to present us in this passage the incomparable Christ, the preeminent Christ, the, uh, the supremacy of Christ. And when you have a big view of God, it will change your worship. Right? I mean, people have said, why do, why do Christians look miserable when you worship Right? I mean, why do we look miserable when we sing songs? Why are, why are our faces not radiant with joy as we sing about the Savior who has saved us from hell and condemnation? But when we have a big view of God, it changes our worship. It changes our outlook on our circumstances. It brings us peace when the world says you should be falling apart. It fills us with wonder and amazement. But see, it gets better. It gets better as we go farther in the passage because this supreme God, this Christ, uh, who is supreme in his nature and authority and power, is also a loving God. And that's what Paul's going to present us next. He is a loving God who desires for us to know him personally, who desires a relationship with us, where we walk with him, where we, we turn to him, we follow him, where we trust in him in all things. And so this is where the rest of the passage is leading us. The three, point number three today, is that Jesus is supreme in his position. Jesus is supreme in his position. And if you were to write out next to your uh, next to your outline there that he is supreme in his position as Savior and Redeemer. Verse 18. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. There are two aspects to his position in verse 18. It says, first, that he's the head of the body, the church. And second, he is the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus is the head of the church. He is sovereign. He rules over the church. He is the reason and our, our direction and guide. If we have to ask a question of what should we do as a church, we look to Christ and we say, Christ, what would you have us do? He is the reason and the motivation between our ministries, behind our activities, behind what we do and the priorities we set as a ministry. He gives us spiritual gifts to serve one another, to magnify and glorify him, and he is the reason that we worship. He is the head of the church. We often think, we often think of the pastor as the head of the church, but the pastor is the under-shepherd. The pastor is the one that is leading us as he's led by God, as he's led by Christ, but 
so oftentimes when we lose a pastor, we, we begin to be uncertain. We ask the question, well, what's going to happen to our church? Where are we going to go? Who's going to do this? Who's going to do that? We begin to have some fear. But our head has not gone. Our head is Christ. He is still there. We still follow him. He is still the reason and the motivation for everything we do as a church. We have not lost Christ, because he, and he still sits on his throne. He is still in control, and he still loves us, and he's watching over us. Will we un- see uncertainty because we can't see more than one, one or two steps ahead? We can't see what this stage and the sanctuary are going to look like in a month. God knows everything that's going to happen step by step all the way. He knows every step, every day of your life. He still sits on his throne. Christ is the head of the church. He is the one that has saved us, and we cannot lose him. Verse 18. So this is, remember, this is part of Paul trying to present that we we not only have a supreme God, we have a supreme God who loves us, right? We have a supreme God who desires a relationship with us in verse 18. He's the head of the body. He's the church. He's bought us, right? He, He saved us. He died on the cross for us. And the second part of this is that he's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead. If you have the NIV today, uh, NIV will put, a word, put an, a word there that most translations won't have. It'll put and. He says he's the firstborn, or he's the beginning, and the firstborn from among the dead. But in the Greek, the two, the two are right next to each other. And the firstborn from among the dead just reinstates or reinforces the beginning. And so it's one thought. It's one, one concept. But we know one of the confusing things as you read this, you say he's the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus is not the first to be raised from the dead, right? Uh, we, we already named three that Jesus raised from the dead. There are at least three in the Old Testament where Elijah or Elisha were involved with raising other people from the dead. And so Jesus is not the first to be resurrected, but Jesus is the first to die, be resurrected, and never die again. He remains alive. He conquered sin and death that in him and through him we might have eternal life. And this is essential, right? Paul tells us that this is essential in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where Paul lays out for us why the resurrection and Jesus' continued being alive, continued existence is essential. He tells us that Jesus did not raise from the dead in verse uh, 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says our faith is worthless. In verse 19, he says, our, our, uh, we should be pitied among all men if this didn't happen. This is essential that, that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead, that he not only died and came back to life, but that he never died again, that he came to earth as man, as Emmanuel, God with us, that he suffered temptations just as you and I do, but he did not sin in them. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus is the one man and throughout history that is not deserving of death because he lived a perfect and sinless life. And yet he went to the cross. He died for us. The Bible says he died as a propitiation, as a, as a substitute for you and for I. He paid our penalty, our, our, uh, our, what we owed he paid. He died willingly. And on the third day he was raised from the dead and he is alive today, tomorrow, and forever. And for these reasons, we look at the end of verse 18. He says he's the firstborn from the, among the dead. The reason he died died for us, the reason he's created all things, is because he himself, so that he himself will have first place in everything. First place in creation, first place in salvation, and first place in your life. 
So the question that we have to ask when we look at Christ and we truly see who he is, we have to ask, is he first in our lives? If he is this supreme God who created all things, who everything was created for, the reason that you are here today, the reason he created you was for him. Is he first in your job? Is he first in your family? Is he first in your ambitions? Is he first in your hobbies? Is he first in every area of your life? Because he deserves no less. Jesus is supreme in his nature and authority. Jesus is supreme in his power. Jesus is supreme in his position. And finally, today, Jesus is supreme in his purpose. Verses 19 through 23. Jesus is supreme in his purpose For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If, in verse 23, this if is not referring to uh, a condition. It's referring to, hey, if all these things are true, if everything I've said before this is true, then, um, then indeed you continue in faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, was made a minister. Jesus is supreme in his purpose as the one who reconciles us to God. Jesus brought everything into existence. Jesus created Adam and Eve knowing that they would sin in the garden that he might reconcile them to Christ. That they might he might reconcile them to God. He brought us into existence knowing that we would sin so that he might reconcile himself to all things. Try to explain this to a 10-year-old, right? Um, Why did God allow us to sin? He allowed us to sin because he knew that he would be the most glorified by reconciling us to himself. That when we are undeserving of his love and forgiveness, he offers it as a free gift through his death on the cross that if we would just believe in him, we would be saved. That we could do nothing to be, er- to be worthy of it or to earn it. That Jesus knew that when he created Adam and Eve, that they were going to sit in the garden for the reason that he would be most glorified by reconciling people to himself, by offering forgiveness as a free gift, by dying on the cross that we might have forgiveness of sins. He knew that he would be most glorified by extending grace to sinners. In these verses, it tells us that we were once hostile to him, All things, in verse 21, we were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. I don't care if you were 5 when you were saved or you were 55 or 85. You were once hostile to God and alienated from him, separated from him because you were not good enough. As perfect as as, uh, little Wesley is... uh, I don't even, there's a little Wesley in here. We were holding little, we were fighting over a little Wesley last night. We were holding uh, Wesley Whitmer. And as you look at a perfect little baby, you know that even, that none of us are perfect. None of us are good enough. None of us will able to resist sin when we have that opportunity. 
he created all things that he might be glorified by reconciling them to himself. Jesus knew before creation that he would be most glorified by reconciling sinners with the righteousness of God, which should only be accomplished through a perfect sacrifice, his sacrifice on the cross, through the shedding of his blood that we might have the forgiveness of sin and that his righteousness might be accounted or granted to us through him. We had a um, pastor back in Kentucky that, and, um, uh, last week that, that said the difference between Christianity and all other world relig- religions are the letters N-E. The difference between Christianity and all other religions in the world are the letters N-E. All other re- world religions are about do, D-O. They all are about what you do in this world and whether you can, be er- whether you can earn or be worthy of salvation what you do. But Christianity is about D-O-N-E. It's about done. It's about what Christ has already done for us on the cross, that we might be saved, that we might have eternal life. He's supreme in his purpose. And in the book of Colossians, Paul is making much of Christ. I love it. it truly, if you read through uh, Colossians chapter 1, you'll get to, uh, you, he, he's introducing himself, and he's introducing uh, kind of wise writing and his prayers for the church. And then he switches in verse 13 to start talking about Christ, and he gets lost in Christ. He gets lost in Christ until verse 24, which we'll come back to next week, where he begins to talk about himself again. He's making much of Christ because the teachers are trying to make little of him. And the truth is that, this, that Christ is supreme in all things. The supremacy of Christ, or the supremacy in all things belongs to Christ because he's the creator, he's the life giver, he's the sustainer. All power and authority reside in him whether we acknowledge it or not. He desires for us to make him supreme in our lives. Paul is lifting up Christ because Christ is more than just a good teacher. Christ is more more than just a man. Christ is God who come to dwell with us, to love us, and to die for us, and to offer us all eternal life. And so the question for us today, is he supreme in all things in your life? First of all, have you turned to him and you've given your life to him And second of all, are you doing that on a daily basis? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you. I thank you for how amazing and wonderful you are. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be in awe of you and what you've done, the forgiveness that you offer to us through your death upon the cross. Lord, may you move in our hearts and help us to recognize and see areas of our life where we have not made you supreme. We need to first come and surrender all to you. And Lord, I pray that if if there are those here today that have not done that, that they will. They will surrender their entire life to you. Lord, pray that you would help us that, that say that we follow you. Lord, that you help us to see in our hearts where we have not made you supreme. We have not made you supreme in, in decisions that we're making or, or uh, how we're living our life. God, you are good. We thank you for your love and your grace. It's your name.